Genesis 20 and 21 this morning. Little two for one deal. Both chapters talking about the birth of Isaac, leading up to the birth of Isaac, something we've all been waiting for in this series. And I want us to get a full effect for this story. I want, to get it, I want us to get the full effect of this story because sort of as much as humanly possible, as much as human language uh, can help us, this story gives us the full effect of God's grace. How many of you know today that God is full of grace? How many of you know today that we serve a God of great grace? Truest thing we could sing is amazing grace. How sweet the sound. To understand today's story, and really to understand every story in the book of Genesis, um, you have to understand the goal of Genesis, which is twofold. There are two points to this story, two points to really every story in the book of Genesis, and that is lesson and lineage, okay? So I want to teach you this this morning because I want you to understand the Bible when you read it, the full effect, right? Lesson and lineage. That's what Genesis is all about in each story. Basically, in most of these stories, there will be a lesson about the sabotage of sin, right? God creates his world perfect and good and holy at peace with shalom, all things working correctly, and then sin enters into the world, and death by sin, and chaos by sin, and sickness by sin, and there is the sabotage of sin, and we have story after story of what not to do, in essence. Lessons. At the same time, every story is about lineage. It's about how God is sending his son into the world to crush the head of the serpent who tempted us to sin, and to defeat Satan, to save a people for himself, despite all their failures, it's as if grace throughout every story of Genesis is just laughing at sin, because grace always prevails, amen? So we see this obviously at the very beginning of the book where the tone is set, Genesis 3, Eve falls at the temptation of the serpent, there's a lesson in there for us, is there not, right? Resist the serpent. It did not fare well for Eve. It won't fare well for you. Lesson. But there's also something about lineage right away in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is the verse that the whole book is based on. It's the promise that is fulfilled throughout the rest of the Old Testament till we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This idea that there would be the seed of the serpent... Okay, seed of the serpent means there will be people who follow the serpent. Don't be one of them. There will be people who obey the serpent, who love the serpent, who, who instead of flee the serpent, embrace the serpent. There will be the people of the serpent, but yet in that same verse it says there will be a seed of the woman, that there would be people like Eve, who is the mother of all the living, people who choose life and life more abundantly. They choose to repent and to worship their creator. And eventually, this seed of the woman will not just be a people, but a person, a son of Eve, who will eventually come and crush the head of the serpent. We see this fulfilled in Jesus Christ. From Genesis 3.15 to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the promise of this lineage is kept. And so what you see in the Old Testament, but particularly in Genesis, the rest of the book are these stories, one after the other, that teach us lessons, 
And also trace the lineage of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman isn't any better than the seed of the serpent. It's not good in and of itself. It's not filled with people who just only do right and never do wrong. Rather, these are people of failure, people of sin. And yet by the grace of God, it thrives and survives until we get Jesus. We see this in this story. We see this in the backdrop of this story. What's the backdrop of this story? Well, if you were here last week, we, uh, we read Genesis 19. It's a doozy, okay? Don't read it around the kids. It's PG-13 at best. But Genesis 19 is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then at the end of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah quite a bit. We didn't really hit this because it's one of the weirdest stories in the scriptures, one of the hardest to understand stories, and one of the most difficult to read stories, really, in the scriptures. There's Abraham's nephew, a guy named Lot, and his daughters. They hide from Sodom and Gomorrah in a cave. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the daughters of Lot have children with Lot as he's getting intoxicated, wasted in the cave, and they have kids. One has a kid that's the father of the Moabites. One has a kid that's the father of the Ammonites. And we, in the 21st century, read this and go, excuse me? Like, what? What is that story all about? (laughs) What's going on with this? I haven't seen this one in the, you know, on the coffee cup. Uh, This passage isn't in the Christmas card. What's going on? What's this verse? And here's the idea is that it's tracing the seed of the serpent. You see, the original reader reading Genesis as a book, and by the way, it is a book, they're reading along looking for that fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And here's the idea. When you see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you might be tempted to think, oh, the seed of the serpent is crushed. But no, we're a far, far cry from when the seed of the serpent is crushed. This is the book of beginnings. This is only the beginning. And so after Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, you got this thing where Lot's daughters, through sin, have the head of the Moabites, the child that leads the Moabites, and then the child that ends up leading the Ammonites, both become enemies of God, enemies of his people, both become wicked nations. So it shows you the respawning, if you will, of the seed of the serpent, that the serpent is not yet done. But then you turn the chapter to our chapter, chapter 20, and you see that the, in 21, and see that the seed of the woman is not yet done, that the seed of the woman that will come and crush the head of the serpent, that he's still coming, that he's still thriving, that that will still survive, even though we do everything we can to throw it away through our failure and sin. So today we don't see the seed of the woman, right, being holy and good and righteous, so he deserves to be saved. No, what we see is Abraham and Sarah caught in a lie. They fail to tell the truth. And you'll see that it's a lesson for us to tell the truth. However, we're also going to see God's faithfulness in bringing about this lineage of our Savior Jesus. Even though we catch Abraham and Sarah in a lie today, God is going to keep the promise. Through Abraham and through Sarah, in their 90s, by the way, there will come a son named Isaac that keeps the family line going, the family line that will eventually lead to Jesus who does crush the head of the serpent and who will one day crush the head of the serpent once and for all, all by grace. 
So what we have in Genesis are stories of people's failures to learn from. Particularly, we learn how sin sabotages everything. And then we have this story, this overarching story of God's grace. He makes a promise. He keeps his promise to save, even though we don't deserve it. Like Abraham and Sarah, we have failures, we have sin. And yet God's grace is so powerful, it merely laughs in the face of the serpent and its sin. So let's check this out in real time. Let's look at chapter 20. And we'll see the sabotage of sin. Remember last time we saw Abraham and Sarah, it was chapter 18, where God had promised them that even though they're in their 90s, and Abraham's about 100, by this time next year, you would have a baby. That was the last time they had spoken to Sarah. God had spoken to Sarah. This time next year, you guys will have the promised child, the next in this lineage. And what do they do with that year? What do they do with that year? Do they get the nursery ready? They get a baby shower? Get out the baby name book? No, they do what we would do. They do what we do. They attempt to sabotage everything that God has given them with their sin. Check it out. We'll just read two verses and you'll see this. Genesis 20, verse 1 and 2, it says, And Abraham journeyed from thence towards the south country, and he dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned, or he temporarily lived, in Gerar, which I always think of Greer when I see that, right? So Abraham's living up in Greer. Pray for him. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Greer, sent and took Sarah. Okay. You thought it was Jay Gilstrap. It is not. Yeah, Gilstrap family dealership, truck farm of Easley. Anyway, um, I listen to the radio. Now, King of Greer, Abimelech, takes Sarah to be his wife because he's like, hey, she's free for the taking. So here's a question, class. Does Abraham lie? Is, Abraham's, is Sarah Abraham's sister? Yes or no? The truth is that Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. Right? So we got to remember, this is a very archaic age, totally different norms, totally different gene pool, we can't really understand it, but it would have not have been uncommon, it would have not have been unclean in these ancient times to be married to a relative, okay? You can insert a joke about Kentucky right here. I won't because I'm too mature, but there are times in the Old Testament you'll see brother and sister married, okay? So they are brother and sister, but they are indeed married, okay? So follow-up question, is Abraham lying? Yes. And is lying a sin? Yes. And you might notice that Abraham has actually done this once before. We heard about this back in June, the last time JJ preached for us. Abraham did this in chapter 12 with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He said this exact lie in this exact scenario because Abraham's a lot like you and he's a lot like me, human beings. We tend to do the same sins over and over. Abraham's no different. Here, Abraham's worried, and he's worried in this very sinful way. This isn't self-defense, this is self-protection. If it was self-defense, he wouldn't have given up Sarah to harm's way. So don't think that he's just being brave, trying to, you know, no, no, no. He's scared, and he's being a coward, giving his wife away. He's trying to protect himself, because apparently, even though Sarah is in her 90s, again, because of the different gene pool and all that going on, she still looks like she is ready to be married, Right? That she is young. She has a look like that. That They can't tell that she's in her 90s or something. Because as soon as the king finds out that she's not married, he takes her for himself. Right? She's got no husband? Great, the king says. She's mine. So he takes Sarah for himself. So here's a third question for you. Does Abraham's 
plan work? And the answer is no. You know, perhaps for a brief moment, Abraham himself feels a little safer, though I'm sure Sarah's scared to death, right? But in the end, he's separated from Sarah. So here he is, he is trying to keep them all together, but instead they get pulled in all these different directions. He's trying to retain the family, but instead it's ripped apart. He is trying to save his family, and yet sin sabotages it. So this teaches us we should tell the truth. Lying will never work. How do we know? Abraham's story. There's a lesson in there for us. And we need this lesson, don't we? Because we are just like Abraham. You are just like Abraham. I'm just like Abraham. God has made to us great and precious promises. And we accept them. And then the next chapter of our life, we are trying to control everything. We are manipulating everything. And we start lying to everybody in order to try to keep that control illusion going. Right? We're just like Abraham. And funny enough, like in Abraham's case, Sin sabotages, and there are some very ironic consequences, aren't there, for our sin. Tried to save his family, so he lies about his family, he loses his family. It's just fascinating how it always makes things worse. I remember one time being in high school. When I was in high school, I got a cell phone. Now, you have to remember what cell phones were like. This is like back when I had a Nokia cell phone. It was like a brick. Like they used these to build the pyramids. That's how they did it. There's this cell phone. It had nothing going on, right? But I could call. And I remember being in high school, calling, I probably called the school office from inside the school like 100 times that day. I would call the office. When they would answer it, I would hang up. Call again, answer, hang up. They didn't have caller ID. Again, different times. I know I'm a fossil, but it's still, it's true, right? You call on these people, hang up. Call on these people, hang up. And I thought it was hilarious, so I told my friends. And my friends told their friends. And before you knew it, Everybody in my class knew I was doing this, including this one girl. And I'm talking about a girl who had never broken a rule in her life. Okay, she stops at yellow lights. Right? She reads the terms and conditions before she hits agree. You know what I'm talking about, right? So I saw that she knew. I saw her later that day, third, fourth period. She's talking to the principal. I knew I'm going to get in trouble. So I took my, my phone into the bathroom. I ducked into the bathroom when I saw them, and I threw my phone on the ground, and I threw my phone against the wall. And to be honest, those Nokias, man, they, they deserve some credit. Those things are hard to break. I'm just chucking my phone up against the wall, and finally it cracks into pieces, and the screen's all shattered. Sure enough, by fifth period, sixth period, the principal wants to see me, asked me if I've been calling his office all day, driving him crazy, and I said, it couldn't be me. Look, I, my phone's broke. Of course, you know, he gets suspicious right away and he goes, well, luckily, your phone records are all online. They print your phone records and mail them to your parents at the end of the month. I can just have your parents check to see who you called. And then I knew, not only I'm caught, and now I don't have a phone. <laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? Here I am trying to save my phone. Now I'm in trouble for using my phone improperly, and I don't even get my phone back after being grounded because I destroyed it. Right? It's the ironic twist of sin. 
Right? It's amazing. Jesus said, like, yeah, when you try to save your life, you lose it. When you try to take control of everything and when you try to manipulate the situation by lying, it, lying ends up punishing you worse than the punishment. This is just true. There's these sabotages of sin. I've seen this from, like, college students. Welcome back. I have seen college students cheat in order to try to keep in school, keep their grades high, get caught for cheating, and then get dismissed from school. The very thing they were trying to avoid. I've seen this with, 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 with couples and their marriage. They're lying about how much money is really in the account, one spouse to the other, so that they can keep their marriage. Then the spouse finds out they've been lying. There isn't anything in the account, and now they've destroyed their marriage. The sabotage of sin is real. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Galatians 6, I think it is, verse 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Right, many times, like Abraham, we have these very ironic consequences, the sabotage of sin. We tell a lie, and yet we are imprisoned by it, because only the truth can set us free. Right? All of our sin seeks to sabotage. So here's a question for us, just a commercial break, just something for you to ponder. What is sin trying to sabotage in your life? What is your sin seeking to sabotage? Your marriage? Relationship with your kids? Finances? Is your sin seeking to sabotage your peace? Your consistency? Your joy? Your friendships? That's the lesson. There's a lesson in this story, isn't there? He lies. His wife is taken by a king. But make no mistake, this also has everything to do with lineage. Tracing the lineage of the promised seed. Think about what this means in terms of lineage. If the king takes Sarah to be his wife, it is going to be hard for Abraham and Sarah to produce the promise of child, the child of promise, this time next year. Right? And, and if God is miraculously opening the womb of Sarah in her old age, and now she is the king's wife, it might be the king who has this child, but that would go against the last nine chapters, all the way since chapter 12, of God promising Abraham that he would be the father of the serpent-crushing seed. So no, Abraham hasn't fixed anything, and it's potentially sabotaged everything, and it's potentially seeking to sabotage even the promise of God for the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So the original reader is gasping at this point, thinking, what? After all this, we're going to lose it. But then we see God's grace prevails. Sometimes God's grace shows up in our consequences. Sometimes God's grace spares us from consequences, which is the story today. But either way, God's grace prevails. Right? As much as we try to sabotage ourselves, our lives, our salvation... If we're God's people, like Abraham and Sarah, God's grace prevails. Praise God. Hallelujah. Look at verse 3. Beautiful. Love this. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou also slay a righteous nation? Right? She said, he said to me, she's my sister, and she even herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, the innocence of my hands, have I done this? And God said to him in a dream, yeah, I know that thou did this in the integrity of your heart, for I withheld thee from sinning against me. Grace. Therefore, 
suffered I thee not to you to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, thou shalt live. Okay, so Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. And God shows up to Abimelech in a dream at night, like a father of a teenage girl with a shotgun. He goes, you touch her, you die. That's the story. Abimelech's like, what did I do? God's like, nothing yet. Because of my grace, you've done nothing yet, because I will keep you from ruining everything. Give that girl back to Abraham. Give that woman back to her husband. God comes to Abimelech, and he warns him, and he turns him from sabotaging sin. God does this for us in his grace. Grace prevails. God turns him from sabotaging sin. Why? Because he loves Abimelech. Why? Because he loves Abraham. Why? Because he loves Sarah. Why? Because he loves you. You see, if Abraham and Sarah don't have this promised child, Isaac, if there's no Isaac, there's no Jacob. And if there's no Jacob, there's no Judah. And if there's no Judah, there's no lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. So God's grace prevails over sin sabotage to ensure that eventually through this family line of Abraham and the people of Israel, we would all have a savior, even though we've done everything to sever ourselves from him. Abimelech takes Sarah to Abraham. You read the end of the chapter. He's like, dude, what is wrong with you? Abraham gives this like ultimate lame excuse, like, well, she's kind of my sister. And right. He's like, dude, you know what you've done here? It gives him, what does he give him? Uh, like ox, sheep, servants, silver, Bitcoin. He's like, this is yours. This is to prove that I did nothing wrong. You, did, like, you have your wife. I took nothing from you. We don't want to end up like Sodom and Gomorrah over here in Greer. Okay, so Go. That's the idea. Get out of here. So to summarize, as you wrap this up, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but you fly by chapter 20 like we just did, and you see this practical lesson from Abraham's history. Lying doesn't work. Amen? It doesn't work. I've tried it. I try it all the time. It never wins. It never works. It sabotages me constantly. We need to knock it off. That's the lesson. Tell the truth. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. And there's this powerful lesson from redemption history. It's one you can only see if you keep the whole of Genesis in mind that nothing will stop God from keeping his promise to crush the head of the serpent and to save a people for himself, not even the failure of his people. Abraham, in his folly, literally gives away the only woman, the promised woman to bear the promised child. He gives away the only woman God said was promised to have the next in the bloodline of Jesus. He gives her away. He has a year left and he gives her away. And yet it doesn't hinder God's eternal purpose at all. In no way does it stop God from defeating Satan and saving his people. God's grace untwists what sin twists. Hallelujah. God's grace untwists what sin twists. This plays out over and over. Later in the book, you'll see this guy, Joseph. He's abandoned by his brothers, left for dead. Later, he becomes the king of Egypt and saves his brothers, the promised seed, by the way, from starving to death. 
But in Exodus, Pharaoh tries to keep the seed of the woman from usurping him and uprising. So he kills all the baby boys, except one gets through. His name's Moses. He goes down the river in a basket. Pharaoh's daughter adopts him, raises him in Pharaoh's own palace. And eventually in that very palace, uh, the, 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 the son, Moses, looks at Pharaoh and says, let my people go. The promised seed is free to grow and to produce Jesus. One day, Jesus does come, the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. He's the one that the world waited for for millennia after millennia. Jesus comes, and then we crucify him. We crucify him. And even in his crucifixion, God uses it for our salvation. He uses it as this ultimate sacrifice for sin to wipe away, to wipe clean the slate of the world, to give forgiveness to all who will repent and to believe. Though he dies, three days later, he rises again to become the firstborn of many who would rise again. The firstborn among many brethren, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, you just can't, I mean, it's so much grace. It's so much grace that it's almost funny. It's almost funny. In fact, that's the point of the follow-up story, the laughter of grace. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1, check this out. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. Right? Is there any shock there? Any surprise? Right? Why does it continually shock us that God does exactly what he says he's going to do? Right? In this book, for 2,000 years, it's been written, Jesus will return. And one day, Jesus will return, and millions, billions of people will be shocked. It's in, it's in the most translated book of all time. It's on every shelf in the world. And yet, we're always surprised when God actually does what he says he's going to do, just like he's always done. In fact, one of the most common phrases you'll see in the Bible is, it came to pass. Because if God says it, it always comes to pass. Verse 2, this is huge. Right, huge. If you're reading this in one sitting, this is a huge exclamation point in the story. The reader has been waiting for this since chapter 12, since we met Sarah. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. It all happened in God's timing. But it all happened. I mean, I feel like we have been waiting for this for so long. This sentence, this verse, for Sarah to have the child that was promised. Back in chapter 12, I mean, even just as a congregation, we're teaching line by line, verse by verse, through the book of Genesis. We've had probably 10 sermons since we first preached on that promise. And imagine what that would have been like for Sarah. If you think the wait is long for us, I mean, Sarah's been waiting literally 25 plus years. Man, I bet that felt like forever. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, long nights, the enemy of the clock, right? The mockery of another winter, the longing, the tears, the wondering, right? The what ifs have had their turn. And now it's God's turn. And God has come to turn sorrow into shouting and mourning into joy and sin into a story of grace, internal conflict into external laughter. 
I know this is only one sentence. Verse 2 is only one sentence in the scripture, but you have to think behind the scenes of this verse because it's actually huge, right? Sarah was promised a year from now you'll have a child. The next thing we know, she's being given over to Abimelech. Abimelech doesn't touch her. He gives her back to Abraham, and I am sure that her and Abraham had a couple fights on the camel ride back to the tent, right? Like, dude, you gave me away again, right? Like, this has got to be, you know, they need marriage counseling. But eventually, a couple weeks probably go by, and they, you know, amend the relationship, and their marriage relationship goes back to normal. And before you know it, a few weeks in, a few weeks later, there in Greer, Sarah wakes up feeling sick, and she is so excited. Right? She throws up her breakfast and she throws up her hands. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Right? Month or two goes by, three months go by, her clothes are tight, and that means everything is just right. She hits the second trimester. Abram has to go to the west side of Greer to get goat's milk and pickles. Right? She's having a craving. The midwives come in, there's heavy breathing, right? S- yelling, sweating. Abraham's pacing the floor like a nervous wreck. And then he hears it. Finally, after 25 years, the cry of his son. The cry of his son. They lay her on Sarah for the lay him on Sarah for the first time. Isaac is born. Isaac is here. Isaac is ours. Right? Like God's word was true, worth the wait. We were wrong. Through those 25 years, look at all our ups, but look at all our downs. We have sinned. We tried to throw all this away, and yet God gave us Isaac anyway. It's so much for Sarah. She laughs. Keep reading. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son that was born to him, whom Sarah bare him Isaac, which means laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son, being eight days old, as God had commanded him, and Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born to him, which means Sarah's 90, verse six, and Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? If you remember the first time Sarah heard this promise that she was going to have a kid in her old age, she laughed in disbelief. She laughed because she couldn't see it. Now she laughs in belief. She laughs because she does see it. Her cynical laughter has turned into a satisfied laughter. This is the laughter of grace. The laughter of grace. Did you realize that the Bible teaches us that God gives us so much grace? It's almost funny. First Timothy calls him the blessed God. Literally, that means in English, what we would say in 2021, it's the happy God. He is the king of true laughter. 100-year-old Abraham, 90-year-old Sarah have a baby, the promised baby. Out of all the 20-year-old couples, out of all the young couples, the healthy couples, the normal couples who don't lie to kings about their marriage all the time, out of all the couples outside of Greer that he could have picked, he picks 100-year-old Abraham, 90-year-old Sarah. It is almost funny. 
God, where's the promised mother of the promised child who will be the next in the bloodline that will eventually bring the world salvation? Oh, she's down at bingo night at the nursing home. It's like, what? Yeah, it looks like she's winning. She's going to take the girls to Cracker Barrel. Dinner's at 4.30. Right? Make sure to tuck in your shirt. She'll give you the cane. That's what Sarah's saying. She's saying, it's almost fun. Like, we're having a baby, and we're old enough to be, like, basically turning back into babies. Right? We mash up our food. We mash up the baby food. I don't know. Maybe it's more convenient this way. I mean, they probably already got to get up five or six times a night anyway. This is what she's, we get a double stroller. We could both get around Kmart, sync up our naps. I mean, at this point, you and the baby both got to make plans based on how close you're going to be to a bathroom, so it all works out. It's almost funny. Literally, that's Sarah's point. It's almost grace. People are going to hear this story, and they're going to laugh. They are just going to, this is how much grace she's given. It's almost funny. We see this in two ways, God's provision, God's salvation. Have you ever had God provide for you in a way that you can't explain? It's crazy. It happened nothing like you thought it was going to happen, and it's almost almost funny. It was more than you could ever ask or think, just like Ephesians 3 says. He took care of you. He surprised you, and you almost laugh at his provision. I have a few stories like this. My most recent one was buying those buildings right next door. Last November, those two buildings came up for sale for $200,000. I saw the sign. I didn't think anything of it. I thought, we're going to have new neighbors because there's no way we're buying more property. We don't have $200,000. We're not going to have $200,000. Six weeks later, about the middle of December, it was still for sale. No one had looked at it. And I thought, maybe I should try. Huh? What could go wrong? I remember I told Josh Moore, I said, I think I'm going to try to raise the money to buy those buildings. They had gone down to $180,000. And he says, well, if you raise $180,000, then you're going to have to think about the roof and the windows and we're gonna, the structure and the codes. And I said, Josh, don't worry about the roof and the windows and the structure. We're never going to raise $180,000. So you're way ahead of this. I put, it, I put it in a building fund, got the accountants on board, put it on Facebook. By the end of the first day, we had $5,000. I was like, that's got to be an error. By the weekend, we had 10. By the end of the weekend, we had $15,000. True story, the Monday of the next week, a guy I hadn't talked to in over a decade called me and said he wants to match every gift up to the purchase price. I said, the purchase price is 180 so you're offering to give us $90,000. He said, yeah, I literally did this. I, I, I'm not used to fundraising. I said, I said do you have $90,000? <laughs> and apparently, that is really rude to ask a potential donor, okay? I didn't know that. But it's true. So I was like, and he told me what he did. He told me how long he had done it. And I was like, you do have $90,000. I was about to tell, my kids go to Christian school. I'm on a budget. Like, I was trying to, I was like, we'll start with the buildings, right? True story. We raised $40,000. He matched $40,000 off, this is off Facebook, right? You remember these videos. Low production value. I was shocked. It's like, what about the other 100, right? That's 80. What about the other 100? We get a note in the mail at this church, okay? We get a note, 12-point font, Times New Roman. You will be getting an anonymous donation of $50,000. That's it. No, no name, no address. The rest of it's blank. If it said anything else, I thought, you would have thought I'd been a serial killer, right? 
it was a scary, it was almost kind of scary. Like, you will receive $50,000. I didn't tell anybody because I'm like, who knows if that's real? A few weeks later, in the mail, there was a check for $50,000, and we still have no clue who gave it to us. No idea. I look back, and I just, I'm almost laughing. We bought property, right? We got a vote on the printer, and we bought property, <laughs> right? Like, no, what I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Like, we're not used to that. By God's grace, you're very generous, and we're doing very well, but, and, and we're thankful. But, like, we did not see that coming. I had four or five pastors in the upstate take me to lunch and ask me for fundraising tips, I'm dead serious. They bought me lunch and said, how'd you do it? I said, I put a video on Facebook around Christmas time. They were like, you're paying for lunch. <laughs> but seriously, you know, you, we bought the property in two months. It's going to take us two years to figure out what God wants us to do with it. People are like, what, you didn't have a plan? No, I didn't have a plan. <laughs> plan? What are you talking about? It just happened. It's like, I mean, that's what we said the whole time, too. I remember Bro Brother Roger saying, if God wants us to have it, it's going to happen. And I said, you're right. But then I was almost a little surprised, pleasantly surprised. It looks like God wanted us to have it because it, it happened. And it was almost, you almost got to look back at the provision of God and laugh. And I think it's going to be used in the future for great things for our neighborhood and for our church. And we're still working on all that. But God's provision is incredible sometimes. Once in a while, he does this for us. Sarah wants to be a mom. She's 90. How is that ever going to happen? He makes a promise. He brings the promise to pass, and she's a mom. His provision's almost funny sometimes. His grace, it's so much grace, you almost got to laugh. This is true with his provision. This is true with his salvation. Some of you, you just need to look back at your salvation and laugh. God sent his son. Who? For that guy. That guy? Yeah, the, that guy? Yeah. The guy in Greer? Yeah. God sent his son for the guy in Greer. God sent his son for you. I mean, look back at your life, and you've, you've, you've almost, it's so much grace, it's almost funny. Rebellious people, you almost got to laugh. You were doing drugs. You were getting wasted. You were wiling out. And God saved you, and now you're the one helping everybody else stop doing drugs. Not the monk, the guy with the white collar, not the nuns. You! Right? It's, it's so much grace. Like Justin Bailey, you care if I tell your story a little bit? Justin Bailey was a resident at the homeless shelter a few years ago. Right? He now has a house, right, living indoors, He's got a job. He's got a girlfriend, it looks like. Good work. <laughs> right? And he goes back to the homeless shelter on Friday nights and preaches the gospel. How much grace is that? That's so much grace, you almost got to laugh. Religious people, religious people. We love religious people. I'm, I, I love you, okay? You're no fun. You don't get to come to the birthday, but you're, you're great, okay? Religious people, we like you. Overall, we need you to find our stuff and to keep track of things and, and to make sure we don't die, but lighten up, Francis, okay? <laughs> Religious people, you were a goody two-shoes, telling on your siblings, memorizing catechisms, clocking volunteer hours, and yet God didn't save you for any of that. God said your righteousness is filthy rags. Your good works are but done, and he saved you for your faith, something the least religious person can have. And now you know, 
I'm no better than anyone else. I mean, think about, the, you know who comes to mind for this is the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, and he thought he was so good that he had a license to kill who he thought were bad. He goes around doing some killing people. He's on his way to some other terrorist attack. God stops him in his track. The presence of the resurrected Jesus blinds him, knocks him over. Next week, he shows up to Bible study like, how can I help? The religious guy. Come, the disciples are terrified. I mean, think about this. Think, Osama bin Laden comes to small group this week. Like, we got to reach the Gentiles. Like, what? <laughs> That's Acts, Acts 9, 10. I mean, read it. It's almost, it's so much grace, it's almost funny. you got the most religious guy in the world who thinks he's better than everybody because of the rules he follows. Calling himself the chief of sinners. One untimely born, the apostle untimely born. He says, I am who I am by the grace of God. You almost got to laugh. It's so much grace. You almost, it's almost hilarious. This is Sarah's story, right? Here she is. She does nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. And yet God keeps his promise to her through hilarious grace. And through her comes Jesus for us. Though we did nothing to earn his presence, we did nothing to drag him down here. He comes down through a line of crazy people to be with us crazy people through hilarious grace. It's a lot of grace. You almost got to laugh. Proverbs 17, 22, laughter does good like a medicine. Psalm 16, 11, in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Ecclesiastes 3, 4, there is a time to laugh. Luke 6, 21, blessed are those who weep, for they will laugh. That's Sarah's story. She's weeping over her waiting, weeping over her sin, over Abraham's sin, over Hagar, over Ishmael, and now she laughs because of grace. And all we who read the book of Genesis laugh with her because despite all the failure, and all the sin, seeking to sabotage God's promise, God still miraculously keeps his promise that he made back in Genesis 3.15. He brings forth the seed of the woman, the next in line that will eventually lead us to the serpent-crushing son. He keeps his promise to her and to us. Whenever they call his name, they remember Isaac means laughter. They call it laughter. Eat your food. Laughter. Come in. It's getting dark. Laughter. It's time to, for bed. Laughter. Like they're, they're, all the time they're remembering moments like this where God's grace was so great it made them laugh. I want you to have a lot of moments like that with God. Maybe you've already had some. I mean, I want you to think back to some grace you've received. Maybe it was a moment that at the time it was painful, almost unbearable, confusing, but now you look back and see how God turned it all around, untwisted it, and used it for good. So much good, it's almost funny. Perhaps you can encourage others by sharing that story. I'd love to see you guys Wednesday night. We break up into groups all over the building. We can swap stories of grace because you need to tell your stories of grace and you need to hear your stories, hear other stories of grace. It's good for your soul. Perhaps today you need to trust God with something instead of lying your way through it like Abraham tries to do. Perhaps you can look at your pain right now, the confusion you face right now, the trials you're in the middle of, and perhaps now is a good time to reach out to God and ask him for a hilarious amount of grace and trust that this God of grace will keep his promise to you even though you're always sabotaging everything. Because that's the kind of gracious God he is. So let's trust him. 
Let's pray to him. Let's call on him. I'm going to say a word of prayer. Musicians are coming up. As I pray...